Today, we have a very special guest on Fight and Revive. It is my cousin, Luke Boyer. He's coming on. He has been involved in local and state politics for a long time, since he was very young. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about what Republicans should and shouldn't be doing when they campaign in elections. It's going to be a great time. Stick around. You're not going to want to miss this. Buckle up, because this is Fight and Revive with Adam Boyer. America is no longer one nation under God. Are you ready to fight for revival? Well, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Fighting Revive with Adam Boyer. So, it's been said for a long time by people with, as Michael Knowles would put it, have two brain cells to rub together, <clears throat> that Republicans need to be doing things a little bit different when they campaign. Uh, since the 80s, maybe even the 70s, Republicans have had the exact same campaign strategy, and they don't seem to be getting anywhere with it, especially in Virginia. This is a historically uh, good example in terms of it. Um, Republicans, historically, this used to be a red stronghold since uh, the past 30, 40 years. Democrats have slowly chipped away at the majority, and now have turned this into a reliably blue state until 2021, when the Republicans flipped the three statewide seats, governor, lieutenant governor, and, her, and attorney general, and the House of Delegates. They now have a two-seat majority there, 52 to 48. And so and the Democrats held on to a majority in the Senate, 22 to 18, which they already had. Senate was not up for election in 2021. But this year, all House of Delegates seats, all 100, all Senate seats, all 40, up for election. And so as we approach Election Day, it's too late for anyone to heed our advice now. Not that they would anyway. But we're going to go through some of the stuff that Republicans should and should not be doing when campaigning. And if you're a Democrat, uh, only listen to the parts that you shouldn't be doing. And take those and do them, please. Thank you. We have four topics, four shoulds, four shouldn't. So we're going to start off on the positive side of things, or I guess anything can be taken negatively when it comes to this list. But we're going to talk about what the Republicans should be doing first that they're not now. And number one is talk about abortion. And that is may not be the same. The, the note there is it may not be the same situation every election. But in most elections, in my opinion anyway, the Democrats' narrative about abortion is a losing topic for Republicans. And that's why they didn't do so well in the midterms because Roe v. Wade got overturned as a bunch of bullcrap. And I think uh, Republicans should be talking about it as in part evidenced by Governor DeSantis's record in Florida. But what are your, what are your opinions on it? So I think a lot of times... People have the misconception that that we're in the minority, on, and that the pro-life movement is kind of in the minority. We're a you know fringe extremist group, and I don't think I don't, I don't think that that's true for the most part. I think there's a lot of decent people in this world still. Obviously, there's a lot of horrible people, but there's a lot of decent people in this world still, and decent people, um, not even necessarily coming from you know what we would call a religious background, recognize that the murder of an unborn child, especially in the very brutal ways they do it, even in the U.S., which we will not get into, um, they, their conscience tells them that's wrong. And I think we've seen candidates like Governor DeSantis, who campaigned as a fully 100% unapologetically pro-life candidate in Florida, um, I think that's shown us that life can be a winning issue. I think that you know protecting the unborn um, a, from a moral standpoint, is something that we as Republicans cannot compromise on. We as Americans cannot compromise on, and we as Christians uh, definitely cannot compromise on, because it's not really, uh, there's no gray area in that issue. There's no what ifs and maybes. It's very clear. 
And so I think aside from the moral standpoint that we must bring it up and we must talk about it, I think it can also be a, uh, a winning topic for Republicans in our state and in some cases nationwide. And I think now on the other side of it where uh, the conservatives which rightly push for no, you know, no exceptions whatsoever, no exceptions for abortion anytime, life from conception, no exception for any scenario, which is the right, which I think is the right um, standpoint to take. But in a state like Virginia, even the most conservative states in the country still don't have that. I mean, even a place like Wyoming or Texas, which isn't as conservative as it used to be, but take that as an example, does not have the same, uh, even that extreme <laughs> bill. And certainly, and I use the word extreme uh, the way the Democrats would there. Obviously, it's not extreme. That's very common sense to use more of the Democrats' language. But in Virginia, something like that is just not going to fly right now, um, certainly not to campaign on it. Now, if Republicans are able to take back the Senate, which I'm skeptical of right now, but we can get into that a little bit later. But if they do, then we can start talking about a total ban, although I don't think Governor Glenn Youngkin, who campaigns as a conservative but really is much more of a moderate, a Lindsey Graham type, is going, I don't think he'll sign anything more than a 15-week or maybe a 12-week ban at the most. But those that would push for a total ban and say you can't even vote for a 15-week ban or a 12-week because it's just, um, it, it's morally wrong to vote for that because then it's, it's um, allowing other abortions. I would say, well, I would agree as well. But right now, somewhere in Virginia, like somewhere in Virginia, a total ban is just not going to get passed. And so I don't think that it's wise to vote against or not campaign on limitations to abortion at first and then use that as a stepping stone to a total ban eventually. I would agree. I think, um, and is a 15 week ban the answer? Absolutely not. Should we be working toward a complete and total ban? No exceptions. Yes, absolutely. But I do think that while obviously a 15 week ban is a poor start, but it's still a start. There's other things we can do. We can do a 12-week ban. We can do heartbeat bills. All this stuff is some is what, you know, if this comes down the pike and you're a Republican in the Virginia House or Senate, you should be you should be voting yes to that. If there's no better alternative. We know I know of people who on this with the best intentions, might I add, yeah. but who 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 fall on a very extreme side of this and they they say that you know if you vote for a 15 week ban it's a compromise therefore you, it's either all or nothing either total ban or no ban i understand the sentiment and i agree and i'm the most pro life without exceptions person you will ever meet but if there's nothing better on the table it's better to vote for a 15 week ban potentially save some lives than vote no out of spite and save none at all and i think an opinion like that, that unfortunately we do see in some conservative circles, very dangerous. Um, I think one of the greatest examples of this is, again, Governor DeSantis with this excellent record down in Florida. They started off with a 15-week ban there. I don't remember if there was a 12-week ban in there or not, but very quickly they moved it from 15-week to 6-week ban, also known as a heartbeat bill. And now I'm assuming they're working toward a total ban down there. I don't know that for a fact, but they're down to where they've limited almost all abortions, not completely. And even with the heartbeat bill, there's still limitations or exceptions, I think, for rape, incest, right. and life of the mother, which I think is a whole nother thing we could get into. But we're going to go ahead and move on now because we're only on our first point. Number one should talk about abortion, perhaps not in every election. You need to mention it some because it's otherwise right. the elephant in the room. You don't always need to campaign on it, but it's not something Republicans need to shy away from by default. 
Number one shouldn't is play the moderate card. Now, this doesn't, again, necessarily apply in every single scenario, but historically, in we have a perfect example here in Virginia. Um, I don't know if you remember the example of Ken Cuccinelli's campaign when he ran for governor. Basically, Ken Cuccinelli, who was a great attorney general here in Virginia, ran for governor back in 2013 when Terry McAuliffe was running for his first term. He was, the, those folks around him were telling him basically not to, you know, appeal to the phantom suburban moms, which apparently decide every election. And so he tried to do that. His campaign was going nowhere. It was floundering. Then he finally started to turn around, campaign like the conservative that he was, and started listening to the good advice he was getting. And his campaign really started gaining ground. But by that time, it just was too late. And he ended up falling short. And that led to four years of Terry McAuliffe as governor. So in certain cases, um, it's okay to play the moderate. But generally, Republicans, well, if we're, if we're, um, if we are too hardcore conservative, people aren't going to vote for us, which I heartily disagree with. And again, going back to Governor DeSantis in Florida, won in 2018 by less than half a point. I think it was what? I don't want to say 20,000 votes. That's the number that's coming to my mind, but it was something like 20,000. It was a very, very small margin. He won in Florida. And he goes in four years governing like the, I mean, he's the most hard right, hardcore, conservative, wacko, extreme governor in the nation. And he goes and wins this election by 20 points, flipping Miami-Dade, what, the most liberal county in Florida. I mean, if that's not a testament to that, I don't know what is. Um, I agree. We're going to probably mention Governor DeSantis a lot uh, <laughs> tonight, but I would say, you know, for those of y'all watching who, you know, in our audience are from around here, from central southwestern Virginia, we'll take an example close to home. We have, of course, uh, Congressman Bob Good, who yeah. obviously the media would have you believe otherwise about Congressman Good, about Matt Gates, about other uh, fringe far-right conservatives like that. <clears throat> Coming from someone who lives in the district and hears feedback from the average run-of-the-mill, regular old average Joes in this district, Congressman Good's popularity has never been higher. Yes, um, and that's you know, and I, that's not an isolated incident. Um, if you look at, for instance, um, his primary challenge to. Uh, Cong former Congressman Denver Riggleman, uh, who is now, uh, who is now, um, January 6th committee, well, ex, uh, January 6th committee <laughs> official and was, you know, left there for, you know, questions about his, uh, his security and all that good <laughs> stuff. Uh, and now currently or did work for the Hunter Biden defense team. So shout out Denver. Um, uh, We'll, we'll take that as an example. Denver uh, served one term as the 5th District Congressman after our former Congressman Tom Garrett declined to run for a second term. Um, he served under the radar. You know, he, he was not, he was never a conservative champion. He was kind of, he was, you know, your typical lackluster uh, Kevin McCarthy style Basically Republican. Basically every House Republican. Right, but most, he was your standard House Republican. He served for two years, never caused much of a stir um, until he started, you know, some of his far left liberal behaviors that we see now in full swing now that he is uh, kind of taken a sour grapes approach and is now angry and bitter and hateful towards the Republican Party of Virginia as a whole. Um, but as some of those more liberal beliefs that he held came to the service, Congressman Good, now Congressman Good came along, a nobody from a little county in central Virginia. He campaigned on traditional family values, 
which let me point out is, you know, something that is a taboo topic. Now, not necessarily the family values themselves, but campaigning against, you know, the opposite of family values has quite become a taboo topic. Now, Congressman Good came out swinging uh, with family values, with gun rights, with 100% pro-life. And he won, again, by I believe it was 18 points, 58 or something like that. Um, He took that race by a roughly... Roughly twenty points. It was about that. I think it was fifty-eight forty-two. I think it was sixteen like points. <clears throat> yeah. Um, that might have been the general election. No, that was okay. Um, but so again, he, you know, the voters of the fifth district, average people, you know, some suburban, some rural areas, in this district, again, rejected <clears throat> kind of those same old weak sauce establishment rhetoric. And then two years later, when another moderate, uh, we won't get into, challenged Congressman Good in the primary again. Congressman Good left with, I believe, almost 80% of the vote in the primary. 84%. 84% of the vote in the primary, and then obviously went on to win the general by a larger margin than he did the year before. So conservative values, especially in, you know, historically red areas, are winning votes, are winning elections. Michael Knowles (laughs) always says, don't offer a choice, or don't offer an echo, offer a choice, basically. I'm not sure that's his quote or not, but he loves to say that, and he's right. Republicans can't do that. And the Bob is another great example of that because Cameron Webb was this really good candidate, honestly, that the Democrats put up. They had Fantastic a lot of money. Candidate. They had a lot of money pouring in from outside the district because they knew this was probably their last chance in a long time to take the 5th district, which is something they hadn't had a Democrat in the 5th since, I believe, the 90s, I want to say. And I wouldn't be surprised Shortly if it was after, It was Tom Perriello following Virgil Goode was the last okay. Democrat okay. Uh, in the 5th district. Only the old timers will remember <laughs> any of that. So... But Bob, it was very close, but Bob ended up beating Karen Webb 52 to 48 on election night. He, again, he is pulling no punches. He's the most concert, one of the most conservative members of Congress for his first two years. 2022, he beats his primary challenger, as Luke mentioned. His district gets more liberal with redistricting, remember? His with district the gets more liberal. Of a cu- with the removal of one or two uh, conservative, areas. conservative areas, counties, localities, and the addition of historically more liberal ones. Yes. And and with that, all that, he went on and crushed in the general election, won by almost 20 points in the general Once election. Again. Yes. So <laughs> that's pretty impressive, and that's a great testament of that. Both those guys, DeSantis and Bob, are great examples for that. Number two, Republicans should, and this is a little bit more controversial, I'm interested to hear your thoughts, encourage early and election day voting, but not absentee and mail-in voting. The two stipulations are that are encouraged early and election day, not early instead of election day, and still in person, never absentee. And I want to hear your thoughts on that. So I'm actually on the fence about early voting. Um, I should be more informed on it than I am. I know there's plenty of conservatives out there who are very supportive of it. I know there's plenty of conservatives out there who are staunchly against it. I do agree that, you know, the whole the mail-in voting that, raised questions about you know elections in the past that we won't go there because we're on youtube on this platform um but obviously the 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 one you know as someone who's been in politics for a while the the one you know use actual use for absentee but uh ballots is for you know people who are going to be out of town uh military members who are abroad, stuff like that. That's the only purpose for absentee ballots. But encouraging this widespread idea of like, hey, 
mail in your ballot, mail, you know, mail your ballot to the, to your county registrar, wherever, you know, put in your mailbox, put put it in in your your Dropbox. That's, I think, dangerously insecure. I mean, we've all lost something in the mail. We've all lost an Amazon package. We've all lost, you know, a check or something like that. We've all lost stuff in the mail. I think it's just not secure enough. I personally vote on election day. And I'm, you know, this is my first time voting because I'm a kid. Um, but I personally will vote on election day. I think that's, you know, way we've always done it. It's by far the safest. Um, everything is counted on one day. Everything is there in one day. Um, I, like I said, I see the benefits to early voting similarly serving, serving a similar, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? With a, with a similar idea in mind as absentee voting people that can't make it to the polls on election day for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, but I obviously am very against widespread mail-in voting just because there's so many security concerns there. And I also kind of lean that way on early voting as well. But I think early voting, since you're still going to your registrar's office, filling out a ballot, I think is much safer. And let's remember to that pre-2020, this was not a partisan thing either. Democrats didn't trust electronic mail-in ballots. There's tons of clips on YouTube of Democrats talking about the how um, uh, distrustful, how insecure voting machines are. And no one wanted mail-in voting, certainly not mass mail-in voting. And I will say the stipula- another one of the stipulations for this point is if we could go back, which this point is for as long as it's here, if we can find a way in this country to go back to in-person on Election Day voting, I'm all for it. I'm completely serious, with the exception, obviously, if a member's serving in Iran or somewhere, you know, overseas, and he mm-hmm. wants to vote, I can understand that. You know, right. let him have an absentee ballot. But it had to be a very extreme scenario, and otherwise, I'm I'm not in favor. Of, but as long as it's here to stay, that's my opinion on it. Encouraging early and election day voting, because one of the things the Democrats did in 2020 was the reason the vote was so incredibly high, was that, um. They got out people to vote that almost never would have voted, never voted in their lives. Historically, low-income, low-motivation neighborhoods. Right. They walk out the door, and a lot of states, ballot harvesting is legal now, which is another tactic Republicans need to take advantage of as long as it's legal now, play by the Democrats' rules if we're gonna, we can beat them at that. And you know, they walk straight up the door and say, hey, are you planning on voting? No, probably not. Well, let me tell you about my guy. No, let me tell you about President Biden or Vice President Biden at the time. And would you like to fill out a ballot form? I have it right here, and I can take it back and drop it off for you. Oh, okay, sure. And if that person should happen to say, um, no, actually, I'd like to vote for the other guy, Donald Trump, well, then who's to stop the guy from as he you know, drives away, go around the curb, rip up, rip up his ballot, and, right. well, and throw it out the window? I mean, there's no, there's no accountability there. And that guy thinks his vote's counted, but it's not. And again, he, if you don't have – if you don't take the care to drive – most people are not more than 20 minutes away from a polling place. Because, you know, keep in mind, obviously, for those of you that may not know, each county is or city is divided into several polling locations, each serving a specific community. So it's not yeah. like you have to go to your state capital. Most people have to drive like 20 minutes at most to get to their polling place. If you, don't have the motiv- if you don't have the motivation, the care to do that on election day, I don't care. You shouldn't be voting. Because exactly. that means you're certainly not researching your candidates properly. Okay, number two, shouldn't. Republicans shouldn't only spend money. And this is another classic Virginia Republican thing that our dads have railed against for years. And I, before I get to this, let me just say, too, uh, Luke was talking about how this will be his first year voting. And the reason I do say he's an expert that's been in the field for a long time is because he has literally since you're about, what, four? Five. Maybe? Five. He's been in politics. So 
I mean, and he's been like pretty in depth with this too. His father has gotten a lot of people, including Congress and Good, to run for Congress and different seats, and so he's seen and help. He's seen helped out with campaigns, hundreds of hours put into it. So he definitely knows what he's talking about. I've been that way as well, but I came along later on the scene, obviously, right. and so I haven't had as much experience as him. 